My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion, The Visitor, The Encounter, The Message, The Predator, The Capture, The Stranger, The end, The Secret, The Android, The Forgotten, The Reaction, The Chain, The Unknown, The Escape, The warning, The Decision, The Spread, The Departure, The Sound, Discovery, The Proposed Threat, The Weak, The Conspiracy, The Resolution, The Deception, The Suspicious Resistance, The Extreme Sacrifice, The Diversion, and The Beginning. And my name is Claire. Woohoo! Yay! Welcome, Claire. We are so excited to have you and to have our very first remote guest. I'm really excited to be here. Now that this works, Anamorphology listeners, you can be a guest on Anamorphology from anywhere! It's amazing power. Maybe let's see if this works first. (laughs) Gray is the realist here. So, my history with Anamorphs is I did not read them as a kid. Uh, however, I did know about them. So one of my best friends in elementary school was a huge fan. And I was always like really skeptical of them because of the covers and the fact that there were so many of them. I was like, a these common can't prejudice. Yeah. But also he told me about the premise of alien slugs invading people and controlling their bodies. <laughs> and that was like really has always been sort of a terrifying thing for me. And so I think I was just too scared also. Yeah. Very You probably made a good decision. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like Jeremy was saying in episode nine, he read some had nightmares and then his mom was like, nope. So, yeah. Uh, so you have read some of them now, though. Oh, yeah. So I started reading them and following along with the podcast. And I have now read all of the main ones. I have not read the Andalite Chronicles. And also I skipped Megamorphs 1 for some reason. But I did read Megamorphs 2 before this one. That's probably okay. So you've read all the main ones up to 19. You yes. haven't read past that. Yeah, so you're sort of in Gray's position exactly. here. You guys both have read Ooh, up to here. Can Claire help me with predictions this time? <gasps> oh, my gosh. Yes. This is going to be great. It is going to be great. <laughs> so what's, what's been your, like, overall experience getting caught up on the animals? I have been super impressed. So Yay. just the way that the level of sophistication in the dealing with emotions and moral issues is so impressive for books targeted at this age group. I kind of can't get over it. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, I've actually also been impressed, even though I've read them before. Like, I remember talking in episode zero about like, you know, the language is kind of childish. And then I really I kind of want to take that back at this point. I mean, the sentence structure is simple, I guess, but it's really pretty complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot that's left pretty subtle. Uh, So I can imagine for you guys who read it as kids, like there was a lot that you missed that you're now getting. And I've heard that on the podcast. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of things. I mean, the the big one for me on this reread was the level to which Tobias is actually attempting suicide in his first book because he never comes out and says it. It definitely went over my head as a kid. Yeah. Mm. Some of the things that I think are a little unhealthy in some of the relationships are hitting me this time and didn't didn't the first time around. Yeah, like, I mean, I was 13. I was like up to the philosophy and stuff, but I wasn't as aware of some of the emotional dynamics. Yeah. And I feel like even the internal emotional dynamics, a lot of those are pretty subtly dealt with and not even the, the philosophy, but and not even the relationships. But Yeah. And I think sort of the way like I feel like Marco is kind of fooling himself. Probably <laughs> when I was reading it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is just how Marco thinks. Right, and then kind of like leaving it. Yeah, absolutely. So this week, what did we read? We read The Departure. Number 19. Yeah. It's a Cassie book. 
It's got a butterfly on the cover. So should we start, should we get into takes on this book before I do the summary? Okay. Book 19. This is, should we say at the same time? Our our favorite favorite Animorphs book. (laughs) Yeah, both Ted and me. So please give us your honest takes about how much you loved it or didn't love it, because we don't want to bias you, but up front, this is both our favorite. But also we do want to bias you a little bit. We arrived at this conclusion independently. (laughs) Guys, I loved it so much. After I finished it, well, actually, after work today, I called my mom, who is a moral philosopher, and, like, talked her ear off about (laughs) it. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Oh, my God. All right. We'll get your mom on the podcast next. (laughs) Also to talk about Book 19. Right. Book 19, Part 2. Gray? I really liked it. It's not my favorite one so far, but I loved the moral philosophy. I really liked learning more about the Yerks. It Mm -hmm. answered a lot of questions I've had. I thought the philosophy stuff was really interesting, and mostly what I was thinking going through it was, oh, my God, I can't wait to talk to everybody about this. Yes. Was there anything in particular you didn't like about it, or it's just not your favorite? Uh, I, I people make such bad decisions. <laughs> Thirteen, remember you decided to cut them some. Slack. I did, and I'm uh-huh. remembering that. And yeah. I took out some of the swears in my yeah. notes because they are still thirteen. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I was like a little that made it not quite my favorite is the hand waving at the end of mm-hmm. like. What do you mean a natural, natural morphing? Starts the research. Amazing. It doesn't make Amazing. any goddamn sense. Well, and that's not even the only hand-waving at the end, right? Like, Karen, okay, yeah. she sees Karen in the mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. We'll get into like, it. We'll yeah, get into yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. One other thing that I really liked about it was how much it's just like this taught two-person play almost, mm-hmm. which is pretty different from a lot of the other Animorphs books. I thought that structure and just the way so much of it is done in that dialogue is amazing. What other yeah. secondary character is there in these books that could sustain that, right? Like mm-hmm. no one besides the other Animorphs really has that, like has the, is de- as developed as a character as Not that we've after seen. It's yeah. amazing. And yeah, they go through so much change in like their connection to each other and in like their own thinking in such a short period of time. It didn't, mm-hmm. at least to me, feel forced, like just really. Impressive. Yeah, it's amazing. And so the other thing, speaking of like things that kind of went over my head originally and now I'm getting out of it on a reread. There's a lot of ableism in this oh, book around yeah. sight, which I feel like I think I'm going to be willing to defend this book in spite of that. But I do want to call it out up front that it's like a pretty big swing and a miss in terms of trying to deliver on the themes that it wants to. And, you know, I don't know. Some of it's probably not defendable. And some of it's like if they had if they had maybe focused a little bit less on sight as a particular metaphor for like why it's so great to be human. Yeah, um, and it wasn't it just... It probably would have been just as effective. Yeah, it also wasn't just sight. There's a bit about her being, the word they use is cripple. And I was like, oh, we were already not doing great on this, you guys. Yes. Yeah, yeah I don't think that part is redeemable. But like, the rest, the, yeah. The, the sight stuff we'll is like really bad. It, yeah. It's like really bad. I will say, like, I think it's possible to say this aspect of a book is not good, but overall the book is still good. Like, you can... I think I think a thing doesn't have to be flawless in order to be of value. Agree. I think oh, yeah. that a I... lot of times, especially in our culture right now, there's sort of like a there's sort of a purity culture thing happening sure. where Animorphs like, isn't canceled. Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> nor nor should it be. Um, so Ted, do you want to tell us what happens in the book? Yeah. So we begin this book in Media Res with Cassie and the other Animorphs having been on a, a mission that's gone south. They were staking out a meeting of the sharing. 
and uh, suddenly one of the controllers got in trouble and was being dragged away by two hork and they're like, well, we can, we can take them in a fight, but there was a backup squad of hork it's a fight for their lives, and Jake calls the retreat at the exact same moment that Cassie is lunging to rip the throat out of one of the hork combatants. And the horror of this battle really gets to her. The fact that she, in the heat of the moment, went for the kill, maybe went for the kill after Jake had given the order, and that she didn't even feel as bad about it as she expects herself to. All of that takes a huge toll on her, and she decides to quit the Animorphs. And the rest of the Animorphs are kind of like, oh, what do you mean quit? Just take a break and you'll come back. And she's like, no, no, I mean it. I'm done. Um, So we see Cassie go home. We see her struggling to relate to her parents and really wrestling over, well, if if I stand by my decision to quit, what does that mean for me? I'm going to lose Rachel. I'm going to lose Jake. I'm not going to be able to morph again. Uh, The Animorphs do their best at trying to convince her to stay on the team. uh, But she stands by her decision. She's not going to be an Animorph anymore. But since this battle, she's been being watched by somebody. And she sees somebody watching her from the woods, uh, but she realizes it's a little girl with red hair being chased by a bear. And so she decides that she's going to rescue the girl. But in the process of rescuing the girl, she's riding a horse. The horse gets spooked, and Cassie and the girl both get thrown into the river. They are washed far away into the forest. Cassie almost drowns, but the girl saves her. And as they come to their senses, Cassie realizes that something is wrong. This isn't just any little girl. The girl's been following her since this meeting at the sharing. She's a little girl controller, and she's been watching Cassie long enough to have a very strong suspicion that she's not an Andalite in human morph, but she's a human who has somehow gained the ability to morph. So Cassie, in the middle of the woods, with none of the other Animorphs around to help her, with none of them knowing where she is, has to decide what to do. And she realizes immediately, if this controller is this confident in her guess, there's no way out of the situation except for me to destroy her, to kill her, to abandon her, to let her die of exposure, for something like that to happen. And Cassie even though she realizes that this is the choice that she has to make, tries to stall for as long as possible to find another way out of it. So she's not going to kill the little girl who who calls herself Karen in cold blood. She's going to try and pretend, oh, yeah, that's so crazy. Aliens, like, what do you mean? Come on. Come on, Karen. Like, you think I'm some kind of werewolf or something, right? So she really, even though she knows she's a bad liar and the, the controller presumably can see through her, she's still trying to find some other way out of it and and put off making this decision. So Cassie and Karen proceed to hike through the forest. They try and find shelter. They have to hide from an escaped leopard who's escaped from someone's private zoo. And, you know, so there, there are several times when Cassie's wrestling with well, if, what if I just let the leopard kill her or, you know, try, but, you know, she continually finds herself drawn to Karen, to the little girl. And as she gets to know her, she finds herself drawn to the yerk in Karen's head as well, uh, a yerk called Aftran. And at some point, Cassie goes from delaying the choice to kill Aftran and possibly kill Karen to trying to turn Aftran over to her side in the war. And Cassie just basically on instinct and on sort of the the things that Aftran starts to say, the way that she presents, hey, you know, 
not all Andalites are good, not all Yurks are evil, you know, you humans think you're so great being predators, well, we're parasites, this is just what we do. They have a really nuanced conversation, and Cassie's pretty upfront about, I should kill you, but I won't. And over the period of time that they're trapped in the woods together, they sort of develop a friendship of some kind. Marco shows up to rescue Cassie and Karen, and he finds out the horrible truth that not only does Karen suspect that Cassie is an anamorph, but Cassie's confessed the whole thing, and she's morphed from human to wolf in front of Karen. So there's really no way out of the situation. Cassie finally identifies her potential third way, which is to allow Aftran to infest herself to give Karen a voice in what happens to the little girl. When Marco sees this, he's like, the jig is up. I have to go get the other Animorphs. So after Aftran takes control of Cassie, she goes through Cassie's mind and comes to the conclusion that she doesn't want to sell out the so-called Andalite bandits to the Yurks. And she basically is open to Cassie's idea that if they can't create peace between all Andalites and Yurks and humans, maybe they can find a peace between the two of them. And Aftran is willing to go back to the Yurk pool and let Karen go free as long as Cassie makes an equally an equally powerful sacrifice. And so uh, Aftran says, you know, I, I don't really think if you were in my place, you would do the same thing. Would you be willing to morph into a caterpillar and stay that way for the rest of your life? And Cassie does it. She acquires a caterpillar, turns into it, waits two hours. Marco, meanwhile, has gone to fetch the other Animorphs. And so this part of the book is told from Jake's perspective. The other Animorphs are, they get into a fight with some controllers, they catch up to Aftran, and they find her weeping over Cassie the Caterpillar. Aftran saw that Cassie was committed, but by the time she said, hey, I I believe you, I believe you, morph out, Cassie was already stuck. So then the Animorphs have to decide, Cassie's stuck as a Caterpillar forever. What are they going to do about Aftran and Karen? And they have an argument, and... Jake ends up saying, I'm not going to make this decision for the group. Everyone has to decide on their own. And one by one, the Animorphs decide that for whatever reason, they're going to maintain faith in the the deal that Cassie made with Aftran and let her go. Then we get a, pers- a chapter from Cassie's perspective as the caterpillar becomes a butterfly. And she thinks about maybe she cheated Aftran by sort of knowing that she would get this brief life as a butterfly and she wouldn't be a caterpillar forever necessarily. And when the Animorphs see this, Axe remarks, hey, you didn't tell me that caterpillars are natural morphers. And they're like, yeah, well, that doesn't matter. And he's like, would Cassie prefer to be a butterfly forever? And they're like, no, what are you talking about? And then he's like, well, she should just demorph because natural morphing resets the morphing clock to two hours. So we then, Cassie successfully demorphs and uh, we learn at the end that Aftran held up her end of the bargain and stayed in the Yurk pool. And Cassie renews her commitment to the Animorphs by thinking that maybe there'll be other ways that she can find small victories like this in the battle to come. All right. Yeah. Okay. Where should we even start? Do you want to start with more like the themes or more just kind of like how you felt reading through it? I would love to talk actually about how I felt about it, reading it 20 years ago, actually. I had forgotten until just now that I wanted to talk about this. Please, let's Um, start there. So this was, so I read the books out of order. This was, I read this one about 10 books in, so relatively early, considering that it came out about 20 books in. And it was 
a complete revelation and not really in a good way. Like it was really shattering. Like up until this point, I had been treating the Animorphs as something that was very much fun. Like I'd read, you know, books with tough stuff in them already. Like I'd read The Capture and, you know, The Stranger, like six and seven, both of which are like really intense and they go through a bunch of bad stuff. And book nine also, Cassie wrestles with all this stuff. And somehow none of it had really sunk in as like, oh, this stuff that they're going through, yeah, it's entertaining to me and I feel it powerfully, but also it's really, really tough for them and like bad in a way I hadn't quite conceptualized. And I have this very vivid memory of like sitting in someone else's living room. I was babysitting and all the kids were in bed and I was sitting in their living room just like trying really hard to like tell myself that like, no, you still love the Animorphs just the way you did. Like trying to recapture that specific kind of enthusiasm that I'd had for it before. And the enthusiasm returned, but I don't think it was the same. Like I think this, like you you can't unring the bell of this book. Like this really changed the way that I saw it because it made it real and not just, you know, the violence and the trauma didn't just exist kind of for the genre. Like they felt like, oh, these actually, this actually affects the characters. And yeah, it really just changed everything. That's so interesting. I remember, I don't know when I realized this was my favorite Animorphs book. Yeah. I was reading them in sequence as they came out. And I remember this book having a really strong effect on me. And I think that I was like really, really upset, but I believed very strongly in the premise of the series mm-hmm. that there would be five anim like that basically that Tobias in book one would be the only like like Nothlet structurally and yeah. like already he's gotten his morphing power back. And then there's a butterfly on the on the freaking cover, right? So I was like, she's gonna like it's a butterfly, like there's gotta be something, right? <laughs> so like I think I remember being like so excited that you get that happy ending in the book. So I actually think that at the time I was really along for the ride Uh and like I went to like a pretty dark place with Cassie, but then the happy ending helped maybe unring the bell a little bit. It Um, wasn't the like getting trapped thing. It was her wanting to quit. Like, that was what really did it for me. And it was not my favorite book at the time. Like, it was an incredibly difficult book for me at the time. It's my favorite book now. It's my favorite book in retrospect. Yeah. Was there a time when you realized that it was your favorite book or, like, a reread where it became your favorite? I don't think so. I think it's something, like, it always kind of shone brightly in my mind, you know, among along with several others, you know. But... I think it was more reflecting on it from adulthood. Like, what's my favorite? I think it's 19. Like, I don't think it was at the time. That's interesting. For me, I don't actually know how to separate this book. This is a very silly thing to say. I don't know how to separate it from my, like, development as a person. Well, yeah. Because (laughs) it was such... I feel like this book taught me a lot. Yeah. And more than I realized at the time. And we were very different ages when we read this book. And this book in particular, I feel like, would really be impacted by that. Like, because you were probably like 10, 9, 10. Yeah, I was 10 at this point. Yeah, and I was 13. I was probably still 13 at this point. But like 13 is when I feel like you're starting to embrace like complex philosophical things, maybe a little more than 10. And also I was dealing with growing up in a way that like you probably hadn't quite encountered yet. I think I was Um, more at the level like, there are good yerks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it was probably a different different experience. Hmm. So how do you think that this book informed your moral development? Oh, because I'm just as much of a deontologist as Cassie. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that 
this book is part of what made you well, a deontologist? How, how, how or can do you I know think that? How can I know that? resonated with it, right? I mean, like, you keep trying to figure out if I eat Wheaties because of this series. I think you can figure out if you're a deontologist because of this series. Well, I don't know. I, it's just it's just so funny how much I think probably the Animorph fandom would argue a lot about whether Cassie is right or Marco is right when it comes to like the moral They're quandaries right. in the books. They're yeah, exactly. Wrong. Yeah. So it's like, but so I feel like I'm such I'm such a Cassie, and I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why that is. Yeah, I think I would fall slightly. I don't know if I would say I'm such a Cassie. I would fall more on Cassie's side of it than Marco's. I guess maybe it's not that I'm such a Cassie. I want to be Cassie. Mm. I I admire the hell out of Cassie as written. She's yeah. an amazing person. Mm-hmm. I relate to Cassie really strongly, not just because of her moral perspectives, but some of her own sort of psychological preoccupations. And I think they're very connected to her moral intuitions. So this is after she's left the Animorphs when she's walking through the dark barn where her dad keeps the animals that are being cured. So she says, I walked by a fox. Its tail had been hacked off, probably by some troubled kids. It paced and stared out of the cage and paced some more. It looked at me. It had very intelligent eyes. It looked right at me. It's okay, I said to the fox. So I found that to be super interesting because she tells the fox, it's okay when things are so not okay and she's really not okay. She's telling it to the fox who had its tail cut off and she's telling it to herself as well. I think for her, it's really, really important that things be okay. And I think that is part of what drives her moral sense so strongly. She doesn't want anybody or anything to be hurt. And she doesn't want anything to be wrong either. She she doesn't want to be wrong. And the fox is a person. Her instinct Mm -hmm. is to treat the fox as a person. Yeah. What does being okay mean to her, though? Well, I think that's part of the question. That's part of why I pulled this passage out. Because... I thought it was so interesting that she asserts that as like, is it just a reflexive sort of helping the fox? It doesn't really do anything for the fox. Is she reassuring herself? Like, I just thought it was like so interesting, this one line. Right. Well, on some level, she's just saying I'm not a threat. Right. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, but I'm sure that's not just. (laughs) Right, right, right. No, I'm so glad that you highlighted that because that's that's part of the that's one of the passages that stuck out to me, too. One of the things that really stuck out to me, particularly on this reread, is how much Cassie is working on instinct. Like, she does not have a clearly articulated set of morals for this situation. She doesn't have a philosophy that's guiding her. She has, like, a gut instinct. And Marco's like, you're just being selfish. And she's like, yeah, I'm selfish. I'm a coward. I'm selfish. And I don't think she's... Like, partly she's just trying to put him off, like, sure, say whatever you want about me. I don't care. I'm quitting. But I think in part, like, she doesn't know that that's not true because she doesn't know quite why she's doing this. She hasn't been able to articulate it to herself. There's just a part of her that knows she can't keep doing this. And I was thinking so much about, we talk about, like, saying, well, she just can't stomach something. And that's sort of a derogatory way of saying, of, like, talking about someone's approach to morality. And we have, like, going with your gut as, like, maybe a more positive, like, more neutral type of thing. And I think in this case, like, yeah, she just, like, can't stomach what they're doing. And I think that that's because there's some part of her that's telling her that it's really not okay. Like, there's a part of her that's not intellectual or, like, that she hasn't managed to put into intellectual terms that just knows that, like, this is not okay. There's something else that she has to be 
doing, or at least she just can't keep doing this. Yeah. And I think she talks, she talks around it a couple of times. Like, I don't know that you can necessarily pin down that she has some kind of framework that's driving all of this stuff, but she definitely like has her instincts are taking her someplace. But the thing that jumped out to me about that is that she's not naive about the choices she's making. Yeah. She's wrestling so much with, I know that I'm making a choice that some people would think is bad. And like, oh, gosh, am I really willing to let all of these bad consequences happen as the result of my decision? Mm-hmm. Like, am I be just being so precious about, like, not wanting to get my hands dirty, right? Like, mm-hmm. she really, she's so aware of how Rachel thinks about things and how Marco thinks about things and how Jake thinks about things and how Tobias thinks about things. And yet she's still trusting yeah. herself, right? So, and the thing that jumped out to me the most about this is that there's this constant repeating scenario where first Cassie thinks I could just let her die. I could just let the leopard kill her. I could just Mm -hmm. walk away. She's got a sprained ankle. She's a little girl in the middle of the woods, right? Like I could just make no decision and let a bad thing happen. I don't have to be a murderer, right? Like, and she keeps being confronted with like the easy way out. And the whole time she's super aware, like the first time this happens, it's like she goes after they've just washed ashore. She's in this killer bee infested moment and she goes to get a stick and she sees this look of apprehension in Karen's eyes, in Aftran's eyes, and decides to give her the stick as a crutch instead of using it as a club to, to knock her out and leave her to die. And so she's so clear that this is the choice that she's making the whole time. And then we get to see Jake make this choice from his perspective at the end of the book. And it's like the Animorphs are, what are they going to do about Aftran? Are they going to let her get away with it? Are they going to trust her? when Cassie trusted her so much and gave everything away. And the leopard shows up again one last time. And Jake won't even admit to himself that he is thinking about letting the leopard kill Karen. Oh, the way, the way I'll look up what the quote is, but he, he says, and I just froze. Did I think good, let the leopard do our dirty work for us? Maybe. I don't know if I thought anything very clearly. So he's, he's like, He's not willing to be honest with himself in the way that Cassie is. And it's so interesting that despite the fact that she's struggling and she's being indecisive, she's so aware of the choice that she's making in a way that is really mature. Mm -hmm. And like we get that comparison with Jake in this exact book. I don't know. I mean, I think the fact that he admitted the possibility that he was thinking that shows something similar. Like she also is not sure about what she's thinking, especially she freezes a lot face to the leopard. I don't know if I'm willing to come down on Jake as hard for he that. He says maybe. He doesn't say yes. <laughs> Although, interestingly, that's also the moment in which Marco saves Karen mm-hmm. from the leopard. So mm-hmm. yeah, Jake freezes. Yeah. Marco has a really interesting arc. Yeah. yeah, and Marco grabs the leopard and kind of throws it away. And that's the moment where they all kind of gather around Karen and have this discussion about what to do with her. And so I think it's interesting that, like, Marco doesn't say anything. He doesn't say a thing. Yeah, yeah we never get anything for, like, about it for the rest of that we don't, chapter. We don't get why. Right, but yeah. his actions Explicitly. are so clear as to what decision he's made, which I just yeah. thought was really Do we want to talk about Marco in this book? I feel like we should just talk about Cassie for like an hour. But <laughs> yeah. Well, well Marco's really up. a foil to her. Like, yeah. it, there's a reason that he's the one to show up. Like, we just saw in Megamorphs 2, they had that whole conversation where he's like, we're in the time of the dinosaurs. There's no morality. And she's like, we still have morality within us. And he's like, you're right. Humans are still here. It's still the same. It's still kill or be killed. And she's like, no, I have to believe that we're better than that. 
And she has this really long thing that we just, we talked about in the last episode. And afterwards he doesn't rebut it. And he just says like, Jake, I see why you like that girl. And here he's the one who finds her. So is Margot kind of the moral foil for Cassie in this book? And Rachel's the like psychological, emotional foil for her? Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. Yes. So That's super true. The thing about Marco that I picked up on this time, I want to hear people's perspective on why he changes his mind. But I'm remembering in uh, 15, the moment when he meets Visser 1 and his takeaway from it is I need to be more like the Yerks. I need to be more ruthless, right? And there's this moment in this book that jumps out to me where Aftran says something to Cassie that's like, it's like such a Marco would say this kind of thing. Like, oh, you really expect like the Andalites, blah, blah, blah. You know, like you expect people to be good and it's just kill or be killed, right? It sounds exactly like something Marco was saying earlier. And so I feel like he, for whatever reason, feels Cassie's like premise rejection, like being an animorph is bad the most strongly because he's been trying to embrace this like really, he's like actively embracing, I need to be more like a Yurk to, be, to beat them. So of course he's going to be more offended that Cassie's basically saying that's inhuman, man. Like what you're doing is like really, really bad. So I feel like that's why he's so defensive about it and why he's so aggressive about it early on. And I think it's really interesting that he changes his mind by the end of the book. Hmm. That's interesting because I was not totally convinced by what you said in 15 that he was taking that away from his conversation with Visser 1. But I think more in general, he is like... Jake is the one who describes it like he just sees the path from A to Z the most clearly and he does it and he's kind of ruthless. I think maybe I wonder what if what changed his mind in this one is um, Cassie did bring up the Visser one thing. Mm-hmm. She She's like, there's someone close to you who you wouldn't want to see killed just to kill the Yerk inside her. I forget how she says it, but may, I wonder if that's what, part of what. That's interesting because I read it as he already decided he already tried to kill Visser one in 15. That moment when he throws the chair and he's not sure if it missed or not. Yeah. My takeaway from that is like he's already doubled down on this. I'm going to kill my mom to like because that's the right thing to do in the war. And so mm-hmm. he has to he has to live with that. Right. I don't Cassie think for made, Cassie. Yeah. That threshold is in her future. But I, I think that he's struggling with the fact that he's already, you know, debased himself according to Cassie's morals. Hmm. Oh, he might be struggling with that. I don't think he's made the decision as clearly. It was a very much an instinctive, like I'm sure he's reflected on it since then, but like destroy Visser 1 to save Rachel, to save the others. I don't know that that is a final decision for him. We haven't seen how he feels about it really. That's true. I mean, he decided to hope that she's still alive. So I don't know. I think that's still an open question for him. Do you guys have any other thoughts about why he changed his mind? So I I just have an observation, which is we actually see Marco three different times being that that philosophical foil. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the book, he's the one who's telling Cassie, he says, you're Miss Morality. And then when you have a bad night, you just bail on us. You have your morals and your fine feelings and all that. We'll go off and risk our lives to save the world. You just sit here and feel righteous. And then he kind of storms off. Because that's what he thinks she's trying to say. And then he's the one who finds her in the wilderness. And, you know, he's trying to argue with her about what they need to do with Karen. He says, we have no choice. She knows too much. We can't let her walk out of the woods alive. There's no peace with parasites. You don't turn them around. You bury them. And then, then the last thing that we see is Marco siding with with Cassie to some extent, right? Saving Karen. And I actually think part of it is that he sees that you can make peace with parasites because Cassie did do that. 
and because he really does, I think, take to heart kind of what she's saying about that in that there are controllers that we would try to save if we could, including Cassie when she becomes a controller, mm. that, that he would save her if he could do that. And he um, questions Jake's, when Jake's, like, making the decision, like, Cassie doesn't, if Cassie's a controller, she doesn't get away. Marco's like, really? Mm-hmm. And Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, he's like, how did it come to this? Yeah. He's like, yeah. He's, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it weighs on him. But he is the last one to, he's the last one before Rachel to make the decision at the end. When Jake walks away with the caterpillar, he's like, I'm going to let everyone make their own decision. And it's, Jake goes, then Tobias joins him, then Axe, then Marco. And so he still, mm. that's not really surprising. He's hes a thinker. He probably wanted to think it over. <laughs> or talk to Rachel. Interesting. So I think there's there's a lot to what you said, Gray, about he believes Cassie. Because mm-hmm. I think that's the most, the most marker reason for him to change his mind is with new information, he's willing to throw out everything mm. he thought. Yeah. And so something about, something about the way Aftran is reacting to Cassie being trapped just convinces him that, oh, it wasn't a ruse. It, it's not that she's just preying on Cassie's emotions. He is someone who it's changes like, in response to Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's in a way that, like, Rachel was not able to change in that moment, which we should definitely talk about. And maybe he was also convinced by Cassie in the same way that Aftran was convinced by Cassie, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. She's not just sitting back there moralizing. She's, like, fully committed. Right. And, and is that's it. a thing we saw in Megamorphs, too, where he's like, oh, Cassie's making some good points. Yeah, and it's like, and, like, it works. Like, he's like, the, the plan could work. He sees it, yeah. right? Can we talk about the Rachel as the emotional foil aspect? Yeah. yeah. So, well, I think... For both of those foils that we're talking about, Aftran kind of embodies them each at various times. Mm. So, oh, yeah. Because obviously, I mean, she's a foil for Cassie in this book. But I wanted to call attention to a particular passage. So they're talking about Cassie's change and how her feeling has become dulled mm. um, uh, yeah. over time in the war. Karen laughed. You were just an average everyday kid, weren't you? Before you got the morphing power. Pretty much, I said. Now when you're morphing or when you're in battle, you feel so alive, so vividly alive. Normal life seems boring now. So I think that feeling of being alive in battle is part of what Rachel gets when Mm. Cassie's saying that Rachel is up after battle and part of what Rachel feels called out about when Cassie is saying, I don't want this anymore. I don't like who I'm becoming. Yeah, that passage where... They're all leaving. Cassie's just made it clear that she is going to leave the Animorphs. And Rachel's leaving the barn. And she's like, Rachel, we can still be. And Rachel's like, no, we can't. You've just said you're quitting the Animorphs so that you don't have to turn into me. Like, yeah. that's just what a cutting insight. And, it, yeah. and Cassie doesn't and have she, anything to say because it's she's true. Right. Yeah. yeah. The thing the thing that I was, like, horrified by is what Rachel says to Cassie. She's like, oh, I understand being afraid. But, like, just because you feel bad, it doesn't mean you're a coward. Which is so revealing because mm-hmm. Rachel cares about how she looks to everybody else and not about what she does at all. She's like totally missing the point that like like Whoa. Cassie's objecting to her behavior and doesn't at all care about admitting to the rest of the group that she's scared. They're like totally on separate pages there. Mm-hmm. And then Rachel gets it. She suddenly understands that Cassie is like seeing her as this person who does bad things and doesn't care about it. And like mm-hmm. obviously that's going to be devastating. Yeah. Well, and it's also incredibly obvious to everyone 
that that's what's happening, right? It's not an interiority moment between the two of them. This is a public mm. choice, right? So even Jake calls it out later. Um, he says, she. I understood Rachel's anger. She felt like she was being accused of being immoral compared with Cassie. He absolutely understands where she's coming from. That's how she feels. She feels like Cassie's attacking her. And I think that's actually why Rachel's coming around at the end is so meaningful. Yeah. Uh, I, every yeah. time I read that part, I cry. It gets me every I mean, time. I just cried for like the last quarter of this book. I mean, <laughs> For whatever reason, it's Rachel that gets me. So I'm just, I just want to read that really fast because otherwise people will be yeah. wondering what made you cry. And I oh, want to make it all cry made me too. cry. Um, so this is, they've made the decision not to kill Karen. Rachel's the last one to come around. She says, Cassie was my best friend, she said, gritting her teeth to control the tears. I'm not going to be the one to call her a fool. Rachel reached out her hands to take the stiffening, drying chrysalis. I'll carry her, she said. I'll keep her safe. And it's such, it's such a thing. Like, it's so powerful that it's their friendship that brings her over. It's nothing about, like, nothing about what Cassie did, nothing about her beliefs about the situation. She just isn't going to betray Cassie like that. We've actually seen so much of how much they mean to each other over the past few books that it's just this really deep emotional thing. Mm-hmm. Like, even if they don't understand each other most of the time. And there are matter. like, there are just like little throwaway bits. Like, when we first get Jake's perspective, there's a line about how, like, oh, Cassie's missing. And Marco's like, she, he makes him joke, like, well, she quit. She's not our problem. And Rachel, like, oh. punches him to the ground, right? It, like, we don't get it described in detail, but, like, sounds like she beat him up, which we actually haven't really seen happen in the books before, right? Except it's for like, her and that girl in the... Oh, yeah, 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 which was terrifying. But. The passage that Gray read also makes me think about something that I hadn't really uh, figured out before. The last line where she says, I'll protect her, I think that is part of what makes Rachel so appealing and doesn't make her just sort of predator that Cassie is really reacting against Uh uh, and against becoming because she's not just doing it for the feeling of being alive and the feeling of killing and dominating other animals, even though she does get a rush. She's doing it because she has people and values and community that she wants to protect. That's such a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really good point. And that it reminds me, like, the way that Cassie says, like, oh, Tobias, I could never make the sacrifices you make, which, one, great foreshadowing. But also, (laughs) Rachel has a comeback that's like, what do you mean sacrifices you make? Like, it's not, you know, like, what do you mean you could choose, like, to, you know, put yourself into the battle or not? Like, of course I'm in all the way, right? It's yeah. like, it's that commitment that she has, and that unquestioning commitment not, to her friends. She's not willing to look at the things that she's sacrificing. She's not willing to right. see that they're sacrifices. Right, right, right. Of course you're all in, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I thought Tobias was interesting in this. He doesn't feature a lot, but... The role that he plays is, again, like, the same role he played in Nine with regard to Cassie. Like, he sees both sides of it and is willing to entertain her side. Like, he is very comfortable with ambiguity, as we've said before. Right. Yeah, he's like, how could I be upset with anyone who thinks that killing is wrong or something like that? Yeah. I I can't get mad at someone not wanting to take a life. I can't get mad at someone for thinking life is sacred. I just can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's very identifiable. I also... I love the thing that Jake says near the end of that scene. He's sort of summing things up. Claire is nodding. I guess sometimes you have to choose between smart, sane ruthlessness and totally stupid, insane hope, I said, not even realizing I was speaking out loud. 
You can't just pick one and stick with it either. Each time it comes up, you have to try and make your best decision. Most of the time, I guess I have to go with being smart and sane, but I don't want to live in a world where people don't try the stupid, crazy, hopeful thing sometimes. Which is a summary of everything. Hope wins again, is what I wrote. Yeah. (laughs) But also, this idea that, like, you can't pick one and stick with it, that it's not going to give you an answer. This book isn't giving us, like, this is the right thing to do. This is the thing to do in all situations. Right. And I I actually found, um, I guess it was just a little bit earlier than that, something that Jake said I found even more evocative about, but if we win and someday it's all over, you'd better hope there are still plenty of Cassies in the world. You'd better hope that not everyone has decided it's okay to do whatever it takes to win. Mm -hmm. Which is like a fairly direct callback to the thing in, um, in 17 where they're having the oatmeal debate. And Tobias is like, yeah, you know, I guess we have to do it. We have to win. And Rachel's thought is like, wow, even I know that saying, you know, we have to do whatever we t- it takes to win is like the first step on the road to hell. Mm-hmm. And this book is sort of an answer to that statement. It's like, yeah, sometimes you have to do the crazy hopeful thing. Should we talk about that? Is that one of you were talking about bad decisions, Gray? There's so many bad decisions. <laughs> Was it a bad decision? Yeah. Sometimes I, you have to make the bad decision. So. How. I, how did you feel about the ending? Like, the, the, from the point where Cassie decides she's going to go with Aftrin's plan to the end. What were you thinking about how everything was just, going down? I'm just looking at Gray's note where it says in all caps, Damn it, Cassie! <laughs> and it also says, Cassie, I love you, and I'm trying very hard to be sympathetic, but also you are a f***ing moron. This is, this is, this is what I want to hear. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm trying to find my note about this because I wrote out... I want to hear it, and then I want to argue with it, and then I want to agree with it. (laughs) I want to argue and agree with everything in this book. Uh That's the wonder of it. (laughs) A lot of all caps notes. So, all cards on the table. I read this book today, and only once, and then, like, skimming to go through my notes. So, possibly if I had read this a second time more carefully, I would have understood this better. But... (laughs) Cassie, what what exactly is the plan? So the the as I understand it, what they've decided is Cassie's gonna become a caterpillar forever. Uh-huh. And then Aftran, the next time she goes into the Yerk pool with uh-huh. Karen, is gonna come out of Karen's head, go back into the Yerk pool, and then like not go back into Karen's head. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they never address yeah, so Karen's going to be a flawless undercover agent the entire <laughs> As time. A indefinitely. That's what I was saying about Child. the other hand wavy stuff at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you're it, right. <laughs> it do, it it's not a great plan. Also, given that you can't know by looking at someone, whether or not a controller, they're putting a lot of trust in Aftran. With well, like that's the, the thing. I ran into her in the mall, and I could tell that Aftran wasn't in there. It's, you can't very tell, intuitive. Cassie. You, you cannot can't tell. tell. That's not a thing. We've established that's not a thing. It, it uh, also even Aftran, who is like a grown ass here, she has been doing this for a while. This is her third, host. you know, host yeah. iteration. Okay. Even she is like, yes, this is a good idea. Like, it's not. Anyway, sorry, that's me. Go ahead. Actually, so third human host. This brings up a whole thing. Before I even started reading this book, I wrote a note that I've been wondering for a while. Since Yerks learn all of the memories and knowledge and everything of their hosts, why don't they do more host swapping? Yeah. They would learn so much. Is it convention or even like a taboo? 
happens, they can learn about each other's inner thoughts that way as well. And then I said they're clearly not opposed to it overall since they change based on status. But maybe there is some taboo against switching too much. And then at the end of the book, I was like, well, now maybe I haven't answered my question. Do you? Well, so if the Yerks experience more hosts, they'll learn more of the human experience and maybe gain more empathy. Uh, Yeah. And then I was like... Mm. I wonder what the indoctrination process is like for years. Like what stories are they telling themselves about mm. these geds and Horkbajir and humans? Right. Anyway. That's an interesting idea. I, I would say it's probably just the inconvenience of it. Like if you're impersonating someone, if you're living their life, like, you know, it would be very inconvenient to suddenly be living someone else's life. Not to mention that like, well, I can actually see the benefits for like not getting too attached to the human though. You're correct. I well, think, and also wait, no, there's that's the opposite of what you said. Wait, that's the opposite of what I said. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what stories do Yerks tell themselves about humans? So if they think of it as like humans are our meat, do they ever like honor their hosts in some way? Like humans have honored animals, like in history with religion and stuff like that. Of like, I don't know. Yeah, we and don't so get we don't get much from the Yerks that seems religious we don't get a lot of your culture to date yeah i i mean the the humans are meat thing i think she's she's being provocative i, I oh, don't totally. think that after i completely that, agree right? but like the, yeah. i'm sure that's the kind of thing that some yurks certainly that's what tamrash thinks yes definitely <laughs> but i think also it's what she's been trying to tell herself because it's so clear in this that she has been having doubts for a while like that's why this works it's not just that cassie's a brilliant you know orator and she just convinces her like it's because Aftran already was feeling really guilty well first was feeling really disturbed by the violence when she was a Horkbajir and then she chose Karen because she didn't want to fight anymore and then she was disturbed by the human girl's emotions yeah about that is that an inconsistency in the book her choosing Karen because like earlier in the book she's like Oh, it wasn't up to me. I didn't want to have an innocent little yeah. girl. So she was just lying about that? Yeah. Okay. I read it That's as she's lying. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I think a lot of times they don't get to choose, but I think she did volunteer for this. So I think when she says stuff like, you know, humans are meat, I think that's what she's been trying to tell herself, that, like, it's okay what we're doing. This is the same as humans eating animals. Like, a lot of the things she says, especially in the first half and then later to Marco, she doesn't exactly believe, but she's trying to. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, she's so defensive, you know? I mean, just the way she talks is, is really defensive full time. Even when she's talking about, like, do you hate me for wanting that? You hate me because I won't spend my life lying. You hate me because I won't spend my life swimming endlessly in a sea of sludge while humans like you live in a world of indescribable beauty. So not only does Cassie not hate her, she definitely doesn't hate her because she wants those things, right? She hates her because of how she acts based on her desires. Yes. Because right. that's what she's right. responsible for. Right. Yeah, you're right. She's being very defensive. So I read Aftran, at least this time through, a little differently than that. I think, one, she's a a lot more affected by the recent death of her brother or, like, poolmate. Oh, I didn't think of that. Wow. And I see a lot of, when she's provoking Marco, I think she's doing, she's she's almost trying to get herself killed. Like, she's saying, like, prove that I'm right. That yeah. all humans are the same and, and Cassie's a fool, right? Prove that I'm right. Like, that's, I feel like that's what she's asking him to do. And the most remarkable thing about Aftran to me is that right at the end, Cassie's like, don't you know that enslaving people is wrong? And Aftran says, yes, I know. Yeah. Right. And it's like, she didn't just change her mind. I think that she, oh, no. she has known that being yeah. a parasite is in some way, absolutely wrong for a while and that's been and that's been eating her up inside 
That thing you said about she wants Marco to prove it, I think that you're right, and I hadn't really thought of that before. But part of what she's been telling herself, like, this thing that we're doing is wrong, but humans aren't any better. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if she lets herself be convinced by Cassie, that means she's going to have to act on what she's known all along. Yeah. And that's going to be really hard. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's... I'd love to learn more about why the Yurks don't have more empathy, because they obviously have the potential for it. And you think that because they can share minds, that that would be exponentially growing, right? Like... Yeah. Well, so I wrote this down. I was like, maybe part of the reason that, I mean, well, her arguments are bad to begin with, right? Drawing equivalencies between humans and Yerks. They they break down in various ways that the Animorphs don't fully push at. But if anyway, you want to push at yeah, it, we are really welcome about that. to hear that. No, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I would happily do that. But I also want to say, I think part of what would lead us and maybe the Animorphs to say the Yerks are really evil and really feel like they're repugnant in some way is that they fully experience the suffering of their victims um, constantly. So even if you say humans and animals have equal moral status and humans shouldn't be killing animals for meat, even if you grant that, I think that if humans were regularly experiencing viscerally the suffering of animals as they're being slaughtered or kept in factory farms. As we ate them, perhaps, somehow, through some sort of empathy, yeah. A whole lot of humans, a lot more humans, would be vegetarian. And I think the fact that the Yerks don't give up their practices because of that is, like, extra, like, ugh, like, what is wrong with you? I agree. And this is actually, one of the things I really liked about this book was learning more about the ways the Yerks approach the world. So it's the idea of they just want this chance to experience what it is like to have sight in this case, but, you know, some sort of sensory experience that they don't get as slugs. But she also makes the point that Andalites are allowed to expand in the universe, and Yerks are not. Their choices are to either be constrained to their planet with a sort of Andalite dome ship hovering above them to like shoot anybody who gets ideas above their head, or to do what they're doing, to do this expansion via parasitism across the universe. And I don't think that those are their options, in part because of exactly what Claire just said. If you have this ability to experience these other beings, I think that there is a chance for them to have symbiotic relationships with other people, because there are lots of people out there, and I include myself among them, who would very happily be temporarily infested (laughs) by a yerk for the opportunity to experience, however momentarily, the memories of three other life forms. It's a really interesting thing to have happen. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't want that. I definitely wouldn't want that permanently. I was going to say, you're such an introvert. But like, Yerks would be really good therapists. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I wrote down exactly the same thing about symbiosis, and I was wondering if there's something about your biology, are they able to sit passively in a human host? Like, is that possible? And I was reading carefully the passage where Cassie is infested with Aftran and like the experience that she goes through of being paralyzed internally. Although in book two, we see Chapman's Yerk giving him control for a few minutes. Yeah. So yeah. it must be That's possible. True. I think and that they the think about it as a test of wills, right? Yeah. Like though the hosts are always fighting back and you have to you have to be on guard, right? So oh, true. It, it seems so there like there must be some danger of losing. Perhaps control. passively but actively 
controlling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all the more reason I, yeah, I stand by what I said that they should well, be. Yeah. So the, the interesting thing is that in terms of Yurk culture, it, it hasn't had more than a generation to yes, change like since 25. they gained space flight, right? It's been like 40 or 50 oh, yeah, years. Sorry, it's been longer than 25. It's been um, like 40 or 50. Yeah. And so certainly they had Yurk home planet cont- like hosts before that. But Yurks haven't experienced anything beyond Ged for more than a generation. And they didn't know anything about Andalites. And so like whatever Yurk war machine exists, whatever Yurk cultural practices exist certainly is heavily influenced by the circumstances of the last 50 years. Mm. It's not necessarily... It was like 26 years in the Andalite Chronicles. It was like 21 years ago and then five years of war. But yeah. I thought Ciro was before that. I don't know. Anyway, okay. Something in that. Yeah, fact check. Yeah. 30 to 50 years. 20 to 50 years. Right, and we don't know how long a generation of Yurk is. Yeah, so it's probably the same, right? So so anyway, what I'm saying is that, like, Aftran is so afraid when she loses the... Dracon beam, she's almost like completely taken out of the situation that she's in to an irrational degree where she's like, oh, not only is like this gun licensed to me and I have to turn it back in, but this is an unauthorized mission. So I'm going to be punished. So she's like really living in fear of like the, the Yurk yeah. establishment, mm-hmm. right? It's an incredibly so, authoritarian society. Yeah, and Visser 3 murders people constantly. Yeah. So like there's obviously structural incentives to not step out of line. Right. And yeah, so, they don't seem to have any culture aside from things to further the war effort and further expansion. Like, it's not like some people enlist in the army. It's like, if you want a body, you're going to be part of this. And we don't even, like, we don't even know what Aftran would say in public about the existence of Yurk rebels that she alludes to. She's like, well, not mm-hmm. everyone. She finally admits not all Yurks think that being a parasite is okay. Right. So it's like, are those people, like, you're not even supposed to talk about them? Do you talk about them, but you say that they're bad Yurks, like they're evil Yurks? Yeah. You know, like, or is it just like, oh, well, everyone kind of, you know, grumbles about the Yurk Empire and like some people yeah. are really sympathetic is to their Is it there are actual rebels or is it just that there are yeah, so like, some people sometimes grumble? Yeah, the other thing that just occurred to me about the Yurk rebels is that they must have a really hard time of it because if they're not actually using hosts, it must be right. very hard for them yeah. to <laughs> pass their message and actually affect change in any way. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the thing. If you want to have a body, you have to be part of this thing, and you you can't do much in their society without yeah. having a host body. Another Yurk psychology thing that jumped out to me in this reread is that, so we get the sort of humanizing understanding of Yurk mating practices, which are three <laughs> Yurks merged together and then are destroyed as they split into little Yurk grubs. And it sounds like it's sort of like hundreds of Yurks. You know, I don't know, maybe dozens. Seems like a lot. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a lot of Yurks. But so... The Yurks have sibling relationships, but they have no parent-child relationship. And then it's really struck me the way that Aftran talks about Karen. She's like, this is a weak host, not a young host, right? So I don't even know if Yurks think about developmental stages or like, like the idea of being children. In the same way, right? Oh, I thought she definitely did. Because, so actually the moment where she says, I didn't want this body, I wanted a human body, but not a weak, innocent little child. This is what they assigned to me. I noted the word innocent. What a strange word for a year to use. So actually at that moment, reading the book, I thought... Oh, it's weird that a Yerk with an innocent human host laughs at the idea that humans might have morals and not all love Congress as much as the Yerks. So that That's was, so interesting because um, I, oh. I totally see that. But I was thinking, uh, the point I was trying to make is that 
Karen is such a hero in this book because her innocence, the innocent human child perspective, is a major part of what turns after him. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, so I just want to continue the note that I, I wrote there. Oh, yeah. So yeah. then I wrote, I wonder if she sees the innocence of her host and rationalizes that it's just because she's a child. Mm. Um, and that was the moment that I wrote, oh, man, is this going to end with Cassie voluntarily being temporarily infested just to prove her point? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Three question marks. Way to predict that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> It seems like we don't see much of Karen at all, but we see her filtered through Aftran and this thing where Aftran is like, she hates me, okay? She hates me. And Cassie's like, that's not what she does, is it? She she pities you. Right. And that clearly is what has been making yeah. it so difficult. Yeah, so just like the little bit of grace from Karen. Also, this call out about parent-child relationships is now making me think about the thing that she mentioned with how her host loves Bambi. Because... Oh. <sighs> That is like such a tragic parent-child story. Oh, yeah. Well, it must be so weird for a Yerk to watch a human appreciate, like react to a tragedy about a parent dying because their parents all die in order to create them. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I also thought the thing about Yerk reproduction being selfless in (sighs) in that way of like, well, self-sacrificing, right? I thought it was kind of like... Well, it seems like a direct parallel to the choice that they each make at the end to sacrifice themselves for the potential of mm. this beautiful thing, like New Yorks or the host going free, or then the like very on the nose thing of Cassie being a caterpillar, which then in turn sort of sacrifices itself to become the butterfly, mm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, this actually, this is a really corny parallel. But it, it makes me think of my experience reading the book in which I had to give up the simpler way in which I appreciated the Animorphs in order to embrace the more complex understanding of this book. <laughs> and Cassie, you know, is so self-deprecating in certain ways and self-neglecting in certain ways early on saying like, oh, I'm just a fool or I'm naive. And then at the end, I feel like she is, she owns it a little bit more. She owns her, her perspective a little bit more. Yeah. She has all those colors. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, go ahead. sort of two directions to go from here. <laughs> Do we want to talk about Cassie's like struggles or how I think Cassie's fooling herself at the end? Oh, I want to talk about the second one. That okay. sounds interesting. So here was the thing. I, I love the ending so much. I love it so much. It's really brilliant. But so she comes around to being an Animorph again. She recommits at the end. And so the first thing that jumped out to me in this book is that it starts with, my name is Cassie. I am an Animorph. Right? So she's retelling Whoa. the story at the beginning. And she has a little bit of foreshadowing about Jake's going to take over for a while. Right? Mm-hmm. So it, it starts with her doubling down on the fact that, like, I'm about to tell you that I quit. But, like, I'm an Animorph again. Right? So she really comes full circle. But the thing that struck me this time is that, Cassie rejects the premise of the Animorphs, right? That's mm-hmm. like what you took away from it, Jenny, is like the premise of the Animorphs is bad. It's really bad. Um, the kids oversimplified. Are, the, kids sure. are, the kids are doing bad things and they're suffering and it's taking a toll on them, right? And so Cassie at the end is kind of like, hey, you know, I can fight for these little good moments and that's going to be enough. But it's not going to be enough, right? Like <laughs> what this book makes, what this book makes so clear is once this plot has like started happening, the stakes are so big and so bad, right? Imagine the book where Marco finds Cassie and a dead little girl on the bank of the river, right? Th- that would be terrible. Imagine the book where Rachel has to execute Cassie while she's infested, right? Like, that would be terrible. 
Um, imagine the book where Cassie does all of this and Aftran betrays them, right? That's horrible. Imagine the one where Cassie comes around to Marco's point of view and tricks Aftran into getting herself killed, oh. even though she trusted Cassie. That would also be horrible. And so what you get is this amazing, amazing stroke of good fortune, which is like, even though it's, I don't know, it's almost deus ex machina in a way, right? Like the, the natural morphing mm-hmm. almost feels like a cheat. It's coming out of left field. But I love it because it feels so it like it it's the only way that you could tell this story because so many other times, the way Jake is saying, you have to make the the more rational, saner choice in order to win the war. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the thing that connected with me this time is um Tolkien's word for I was just gonna bring up Tolkien. This is weird. <laughs> well, his his word for what he does at the end of Lord of the Rings is you catastrophe. Yeah. Right? He coined this term that's so good catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. So a catastrophe is like in storytelling structure is like the unraveling. It's like the ending, and it usually has a very bad connotation. So he coined this term for it's like a stroke of misfortune is a catastrophe. So a stroke of fortune is a you catastrophe. Hmm. And this is such a good example of that. Yeah. Where like it is a little bit, it li- is a little bit implausible that you you put your faith into something like this and get rewarded in so many ways. But it's such a, uh, I don't know, like fulfilling thing to read, and it's it's yeah. like it's really it really delivers on the message of the story in like such an important way. And like I think a lot of storytelling maybe leans on this trope in an unearned way. Uh-huh. And so the fact that the Animorphs is a serialized story about kids getting deeper and deeper into a war <laughs> effort, and they still have forty books to go, where they're not going to go like sit with therapists, right? Like that's just not that's just not going to happen, right? They're not going to reject the premise. Stop lying, so, to Gray. The next forty so th- books are all about so therapy. Just the fact that they're dealing with that in such a beautiful way is like so compelling to me. Mm. And maybe they'll just keep escalating and getting out by the skin of their teeth, right? But like the fact that this story rewards Cassie in such a way for her faith doesn't take anything away from the tough choices that Jake has to make mm. or the sacrifices Tobias makes or how much of a hero Rachel is in battle, right? Like the the series has all of those different lenses, right? So, mm. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up Tolkien because I was thinking about the ethics in his books tend to be very, very Augustinian, like very much like making the right choice about what's in front of you ends up being what will save you down the road. Um, like Frodo spares Gollum's life and that's what saves him. And, you know, the evil choices of the enemies defeat them and the good choices of the heroes are what redeem them. And even though you do get both sides of it in this series, like I, I mean, I don't think I took away from this. The way the Animorphs are doing it is bad because the way they're doing it is right. And what Cassie's doing is also right, and it's really hard to reconcile them. But in this book, she gets to make the right choice about what's in front of her. We talk so much in episode nine about how Cassie is someone who sees the big picture, but she also sees the really crucial importance of her little piece of it, and Mm -hmm. she needs that piece to fit into the larger picture. And she can't see how there could be a big picture that is good if the piece of it that she is helping to make is not good. It is so wonderful that this book rewards that and that she makes the, I mean, like Jake says, the like completely implausible, hopeful choice and, and it works. 
I wanted to just amend. I agree that what I said was too simplified. <laughs> I think that it's not that what the animorphs is doing is just bad. It's bad, but also necessary. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the, I think that's the, that's where I would come down on Cassie's conclusion. But anyway. Well, and I, I also think it's a nice segue from the Megamorphs 2 that we just read, where one of the things that you brought up was the making the choice in the present to like protect the present versus protect a sort of unknown future. Yeah. And I think in some ways, Cassie is making your argument, right? That, yeah, that had Cassie been in charge, she probably would have saved the Mercora. And that's, right? and it's like, that's what's so amazing about Cassie is that she has this revolution that's like, maybe I can turn Aftran. And as soon as she realizes that, it's her duty. She's like, yeah. I must go as far as I can to achieve this small, small victory, yes. which is, inc- I find incredibly And it's amazing admirable. that this book does that when I feel like Megamorphs 2 really dropped the ball. They didn't even <laughs> try to save the Mercora. Yeah. They didn't even really grapple with how terrible it was that they caused them all to die. Mm-hmm. And right on the heels of that very strange... They took it sort of seriously, but they really didn't take it as seriously as they should have. Having this book in which they take this choice, whether to save or spare this girl and this yerk, becomes this incredibly serious thing on which Cassie stakes all their lives. Mm-hmm. This is everything that the Megamorphs 2 decision was not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and I just also want to say Cassie's T-Rex experience is like such a big part of her psychology here. because She it, like, doesn't absolutely. even think of the Mercora. <laughs> Well, she doesn't think of the Rakora, right, right. But it's like, because it's the ultimate, oh, I'm just another predator, right? Yeah. Like, that's, right. that's she has that nightmare about it. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Well, and just to go back, Ted, to what you were saying about once she realizes that she has the option to do this, she recognizes that she has a duty to do it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of key to the change in Aftran as well, because once she recognizes that it's wrong what she's doing, she has an obligation. And that yeah. is what makes the people, like the Yerks and the humans, different from the leper, who only backs off when confronted with like an equal force. The right. leopard's mm-hmm. not gonna realize, like, no, it's not okay to kill this girl ever. Oh, that's interesting. I I was thinking of the leopard very much as just a plot, like a somewhat implausible plot, like obstacle. Yeah, that's right. I came around on the leopard this time. The leopard's a metaphor. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I can accept the leopard if it's a metaphor. I'm the leopard's board. totally a metaphor. What? <laughs> You know, I first read this book when I was 13, coming yeah, to yeah, yeah. No, but even six months ago when I was rereading it, I was like, let's just skip this leopard part, all right? And then this time I was like, oh, leopard, oh my this, God. So we read this, Ted and I both read this in January because um, we were reading it as part of a book club with friends, and that was part of what prompted us to launch this podcast. But <laughs> reading it then felt very different than reading it now after having like done a close reading of the previous 20 like, mm. Animorphs books. It was a very different experience. Do we just want to talk for a bit about how well-written this book is? It's incredible. It's so good. It's so good. It's really, really well-written. Okay. First thing I want to say is the Animorphs books are notorious for having the same first chapter in every book where they go through the same boring exposition. <laughs> every single piece of exposition is a huge character beat in this. Like, Ooh. they save the Tobias exposition for when she sees Tobias in the barn. And yeah. it's, like, really about his, like, sacrifice. In the whole beginning, she starts out by talking about 
all of the other sentient species that she's met in the universe, right? So mm -hmm. she's really saying, like, there are more humans than just the humans, right? It's like preparing you for <laughs> yeah. this thing. The first that... battle is such a good synecdoche for the entire war because they're yeah. brutally fighting in the dark and the rest of the world is... Yeah, that movie. line where it's like, like people were enjoying their barbecue next yeah. to the blood-soaked fields. <laughs> Amazing. And I will say with the exposition at the beginning, that's something we also saw I noticed was very well done. I think it was book seven, which is another one of the, I think, best written books. And I feel like this, how well they handle the exposition yeah. at the beginning might just be, you know, yeah. and a it's bellwether. Like, oh, the hork -Bajir. Turns out they're actually herbivores. Turns out looks aren't always what they seem, <laughs> you know, like also used at the perfect moment. The way that when she finally gives the what it's like to be a Yurk exposition and how that's direct foreshadowing and like when it gets introduced much later after we've already kind of met Aftran. Uh, and the thing that, like the incredibly moody scene that Claire mentioned earlier where she's walking through the rain to the dark barn and she's and just kind of like reflecting. <laughs> yeah, there's an exit sign. And I'm just like, all she's doing is telling us the same stuff about the Animorphs that we learn in every single book, but it's so effective because she's yeah. just in this really moody situation. The first four chapters are just like, I, I read those last night um, and then I read the rest of it today. And the first four chapters, like I reached the end of this and I was like, that was phenomenal. Like, yeah. There's so much foreshadowing. Can I call two other little lines? So oh, yeah. yeah. When, when, okay, actually maybe three. So when she's in the river, I gagged and writhed, helpless, suffocating. My head bumped on something. A rock? The surface. I could see it. Now it was just inches over my head. I think that's kind of evocative of being like a helpless year in, in a pool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. great. That's so great. Right. Oh. And then and it's sort of the mood of this whole book. Like she's struggling, doesn't know which way to go. She can sort of see an exit, but yeah. And then they have this exchange right after she gets pulled out of the river. You saved my life. Didn't you? I said to her in a hoarse raspy voice, you saved mine. She said the bear could have killed me. So now we're even. I don't owe you anything and you don't owe me. So it's like all about like, what do we owe to each other? And, mm. and what are our obligations? Yeah. And how, and how can we, we help each other? Should we feel gratitude? All of this. There's stuff. another, there's another amazing bit. I, I have to believe this was intentional where just as they're starting to get to know each other and like Cassie is like genuinely laughing about Aftran's misunderstanding. Like when they're, when they're really, that friendship is developing Karen has the, or Aftran has this moment of like rage, right? And she's like, why are you playing this game? And Cassie thinks, I waited till she was done yelling. Then I said, I see higher ground over that way. Oh. Uh, okay, there's <laughs> another really great one. So Cassie is like sleeping and she's thinking about, actually, no, I think it's when Aftran is sleeping. Karen is sleeping. And Cassie is thinking all about what it's like to be to have a year go in you and control you. And then Karen wakes up and is like, is it time for me to take over? <laughs> 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 Which is such a loaded oh question. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, I do uh, want to comment on what you said a minute ago about the exchange they have right after Karen saves her from the river. It's like, you saved my life, I saved your life, we don't owe each other anything. Just what a great like starting point for their relationship. I think this is what you were saying, but it's such... A clear contrast with like, okay, now we will give up our lives for each other, basically. Right. Can I also just call out one more thing in the beginning, the first chapter, that I think is a really interesting... Mm -hmm. Well, I actually just want to respond to what Jenny said quickly. They're not giving up their lives for each other. Mm, they're they're yeah, giving right. up their... They're each giving up their lives for an innocent victim. Yes, you're correct. Yeah. Good point. 
And so that's that person didn't save either of their lives, but they still owe her mm. something. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, so I just want to bring up one more thing from the first chapter as you're talking about the way that it sets this whole scenario up. What actually happens in the first kind of caper that Ted, as he pointed out, we sort of start in media rest is that they're supposed to just be spying on the sharing and identifying people that they don't know uh, are controllers. But then they change their plans yeah, and decide to get involved. See, we figured if we saved the woman, the yerk in her head might cooperate with us, might reveal secrets to us. So a couple things. One, what? Like what my note on that was you guys make better decisions. Like I I had <laughs> I had predicted that at some point the animorphs were going to get better about picking their battles. So far nope <laughs> because that is very dumb. But it and is an idea they haven't had yet. Maybe we can work with a yerk. They've never had this idea before. It's unclear where it comes from or what prompts it at all? I mean, this event, I guess. Uh, yeah. And then I think that is a perfect setup for finding a yerk that's yeah. going to cooperate. Uh-huh. Right? Like, they, it, it really is. It's a great first chapter. It's a wonderful exposition. Also, uh, make better decisions, please. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to what Claire was saying. So, yeah. So, they're both giving up their lives for an innocent victim. But there's still this really interesting idea, and I don't think it's undermined. Like, I think it's sort of portrayed as a real thing that, like, there is no logistical reason why Cassie has to give up her life for this. Like, Aftran, if she wants her to be free, Aftran has to give up her life. But there's still this idea that Cassie owes her sort of an equal sacrifice. Yeah, Aftran says, I'm giving up everything. Will you give up nothing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Cassie keeps being like, well, I'm not you, but... That's not really true. They are somehow in the same position. Well, so is it not just about Aftran sort of finally being convinced that if Cassie were in her position, she would do the same thing? I don't think it's right. really like, I want the sacrifice from you. It's more like... It's like, prove it. Yeah. yeah and and it's so. she can. She can make the same sacrifice. Yeah. She she does have the choice. Uh, well, that yeah, that's undermining the idea that like we are totally different. They are really, yeah, they're the same. But yeah, I, I feel like there's something a little bit more than that, more than just prove it, even though it does end up being prove it in the end. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess you're right. It well, just has to be. It's just, it's plausible. the idea. Aftran, she can't admit that some things are just flat out wrong, no matter what. She keeps coming back to this idea. Well, oh, you believe that Andalite propaganda. You know, we just have to do what the Andalites say and they get to pick. They talk about like, oh, and the, you know, the Andalites and their friends or the Andalites and the people they like. Mm. Right. And she she keeps saying like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're parasites and we own that. But you're just predators. It's all about power. You know, like you're not actually if you're in a situation where you have more power, you're never going to give that up just for the sake of some morals. Like morals aren't real, but like. You know, the the law of the jungle is real, right? Mm-hmm. And so Cassie being willing to do something that she doesn't have to do mm-hmm. that's totally unnecessary, except for the purpose of demonstrating that she's willing to, that her morals are more important to her than her life. It's like, that is the whole demonstration. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and that's enough for Aftran because she's like, I get it, Cassie. I get it. You convince yeah. me. You convince me. Just come yeah. back. Right. Yeah. And like, and how hor- how horrible is that? I mean, I know Aftran doesn't come off that great in the book, but like, <laughs> it's her it's her only friend, 
probably the only friend that she's ever had <laughs> that she's connected with in such a deep level. And, and she I don't just know that destroyed she doesn't her. come off that great right? in the book. Like she ends up making the most difficult decision to create this like small bit of peace between them. Like she doesn't come off that great for most well, of them. I hope she's but... not doing it just to create the peace between them. I take it as she's doing it because no, you're she right. genuinely, yeah. you know, has come around to the moral perspective. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she knows it's but, wrong. But like she is sparing this one person, even though there's still gonna be tons of humans infested, like she is going to stop doing this terrible thing. Like that means giving up everything in her life. Like I mean, I think she comes off pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I do too. Well, that's also the interesting thing is like if Cassie were to quit being the Animorphs, she would also be in the wrong, right? So it's sort of yeah. like if Aftrin's just going back to the Yerk pool to like, oh, blub around and not like do anything, <laughs> she also sort of now has an obligation to turn on the Yerk Empire, right? And like they, that obviously is not in the book at all, right? But yeah. I feel like that's the, that, that parallel should exist, yeah. right? In terms of where Cassie ends up at the end of the book. This, we have seen this before. We've seen someone try to leave the war and he got shoved back into it. We saw Elfingor do this in the Andalite mm. Chronicles. And the lesson there was maybe more clearly than it is here that, like, if there's a war that you can fight you ha- like against an evil thing, you have an obligation to fight it. And that is sort of where Cassie ends up, though, with a clearer idea that the war is problematic than Elfingor had, I think. Like, Elfingor thought some of the ways the Andalites were fighting were problems, but, like, there wasn't the same, like, anti-violence. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is something that... I think this is just a way of restating what I was trying to say before, but you were saying, I forget if it was last time or the time before, but someone wrote in and was like, the way the Animorphs are dealing with this stuff, they're actually being like good soldiers. Like the way that Cassie agonizes over decision making in the in the heat of battle or like when the leopard is about to attack Karen, that's a liability, right? And like mm-hmm. that to be an effective warrior you have to compartmentalize and you have to be willing to follow orders and do things and get over it so that you can keep mm-hmm. fighting, right? And mm-hmm. I think the books totally, totally support that that is necessary. But I think what Cassie recognizes in this book is that the coping mechanism that goes along with that, the compartmentalization and the rationalization is really unhealthy and is taking a toll on the yeah. characters, right? So like, I think both of those things are true. Is like what yeah. I'm trying to say, right? Well, yeah, so, and and she much. brings up Eric too, which I think is is yes. completely oh, yeah. connected to that. Um, and, and I thought that was really interesting. Go ahead, so the, I, I have something to say about sure. it too. So the thing, Claire, you were saying earlier that if people had to kind of confront the violence done to animals, more people would be vegetarians, right? So yeah. to me, that's what bringing up Eric does because the reason Eric is a pacifist is because he cannot forget the horrors of war. And the way mm-hmm. the Animorphs do, right? That's the ending of the book is like, yeah, so I'm going to be reliving the slaughter that I did against those people, right? Forever. He can't, he can't erase those memories in the same way that Marco can just kind of shrug and get over it. And he's going to have nightmares and he's maybe never going to deal with it. But at least he can forget. Well, right? and Eric, Eric is also a really interesting case when it comes to change because he consciously decided to change his nature. Mm-hmm. And then he had horrible guilt and regret uh, over slaughtering all these people. And he can never change that back because of the nature of his memory. So not totally sure where I want to go with this. If anybody wants to jump in, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, this is, Unfortunately, this isn't responding to you exactly. But like, so the interesting thing is that despite what the books were saying about how he can change himself, he can also change himself and end the war. Right. So he's actually being the ultimate Cassie and saying, I am not willing to 
walk around California and execute all the controllers. I'm not willing yeah. to stand in the yerk pool and shred yerks, right? Like right. He, he could he could end the war at any moment and he he won't because wow. hmm. it would make him inhuman. And he's not even alive, right? He's a robot, but but he's a, he's a human. He's a person, right? Yeah. Like so yeah. and 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 the way Cassie thinks about it is it wasn't battle, it was slaughter, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's actually something about the fact that the animorphs are in a fair fight or even that they're underdogs mm-hmm. gives them legitimacy moral legitimacy yeah. in a way where like if the animorphs had the power of the chi it would be totally wrong for them to go around and kill all the yurks in the same way would be able to forget it. right like an yeah. extermination is not a war right and yet they've done that before it comes right on the heels of the discussion between cassie and karen about murder and cold-blooded murder versus killing That's in the right. context of a battle mm-hmm. which i know you guys have talked a lot about on the podcast let's rehash yeah <laughs> give us your thoughts on it uh oh wow okay every thought you've ever had on this subject let's hear them. i don't really think i have much to add beyond what you all have already covered about the moral quandary of this innocent bystander in a sense that is like the hork or the human um being controlled by the yerk that they have to kill which in some mm-hmm. sense is like they're killing a helpless person, which is what Karen says. Yeah. But in the context of a battle, I think, yeah, I guess it's it's wrong but necessary to go back to what, what Ted said. So do we want to talk a little bit about like the, the predator versus parasite thing or like... Oh, yeah. Claire, you said you had some specific holes to poke in that. Just a couple things. So... I think most of us would agree that simply killing an animal for food, if that animal has had a a happy life, is a different thing from torturing that animal for a long period of time. And torturing is worse. Yes, that sounds like what the Yerks are doing is torturing people for long periods of time, and they're also torturing. I mean, I don't know if I really want to get into like the different arguments about the moral status of humans versus non-human animals. And it is something that the series gets into a little bit. It talks All a right. lot about dolphins. Well, I, no, I think it's here. It's, I think that oh, the, it's it's totally freaks here. out it's about totally the termite here. queen. There's, it's here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, and I think, like, I find the place that Cassie, I think that Cassie lands is sort of close to um, Christine Korsgaard. Like, I actually pulled some... <laughs> some animal rights philosophy stuff here. Just to quickly summarize what I understand to be Christine Horsgaard's position, she is a Kantian, but she rejects Kant's characterization of animals as not being ends unto themselves. And Mm -hmm. she says, no, they are actually part of the moral community. So like humans, uh, we should treat them as ends rather than means. I don't know. This is kind of like glossing over a lot of Kantian stuff. But, <laughs> but that um, made a lot of sense. But, so you're doing great. <laughs> and the difference with humans. Well, I'll just read this. So this is her quote. On a Kantian conception, what is special about human beings is not that we are the universe's darlings, whose fate is absolutely more important than the fates of the other creatures who, like us, experience their own existence. It is exactly the opposite. What is special about us is the empathy that enables us to grasp that other creatures are important to themselves in just the way we are important to ourselves. And the reason that enables us to draw the conclusion that follows, that every animal must be regarded as an end in herself whose fate matters and matters absolutely if anything matters at all. Cassie apologizes to the fox and says it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so I, I actually do find that to be pretty persuasive, like that that position that I think is pretty close to what Cassie subscribes oh, yeah. to. I'm even I'm even further on I'm even further with Cassie, and like I don't know if the text justifies this, but I, I, the way that I would distill down the Kantian stuff is that if you think animals are people, it's wrong to kill and eat them. And yeah. I think that no, that's I, a, Christine Corsgard thinks. And so that's too. a that's a great analogy to what the choice that Aftran has to make. If you yeah. think that humans are people, it's wrong to enslave them, right? And like you just you you either have to accept that or you don't and then think about how you're going to deal with the consequences of that later, right? And right. both Aftran and Cassie are people who will hold themselves to that standard if at all possible, no matter how difficult. No matter how difficult and most people aren't like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of my problem, though, with the equivalency between those two things is that I think to the Yerks, it would be pretty darn obvious that humans are people of the same type yeah. that Yerks are in a way that it's not obvious to humans that non-human animals are. Oh, I yeah. Think. And it's it's obvious to Cassie, right? And I, I would say, like, the I think the, I think the question that this invites is... Who besides literal humans are worthy of being treated as humans or are worthy of being people? And the sci-fi series <laughs> presents a lot of, you know, other species that they interact with, some that are seem to be more sentient than others or more worthy of the character's respect and empathy than others. And I just think it's really interesting that at some point, Cassie realizes that Aftran is a person. Yeah. And then she can't come back she's like, from yes, it. like, yes, even the Yerk. I even don't want to kill the Yerk. Right. I think this is the thing I was saying before. She's a, like, she's being really honest with herself. But I think that it, she has a, she really struggles with admitting that she cares about Aftran. She, mm. she dwells on, oh, I'm saving Karen. I'm saving Karen. Like, I need to, we need to let Karen speak. But I think she's already made the switch in her head to thinking that, that Aftran's a person, mm-hmm. but she hasn't quite realized it when yeah. she lets herself be infested. And then there's that, like, all that empathy between the two of them, right? Like, that's such a powerful experience for both of them. Like, Aftran basically reads the Animorphs books, right? So, of course, <laughs> of course she's going to be Cassie's friend after that, right? Mm-hmm. How could you not be, right? And it's amazing that Cassie still finds it so hard to resist that, even though she's already not fighting the war. She's already decided not to fight the war. She doesn't need to make any major changes to her life because of the realization that, oh, Yerks are people. But it's still so difficult for her to come to that after having spent months yeah. fighting Yeah, because it's, so, like it's so much easier to do these terrible things to yourself if you're fighting someone who's evil, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, you're kill- if you're killing evil robots who are just going to kill all of your friends, even if that's really psychologically damaging to you, you know, you can rally behind that cause, right? Yeah. But if you're just killing other people, other reluctant warriors, that's a lot harder. Yeah. Which does actually lead me to wonder why they haven't entirely made that leap when it comes to the controllers. Because, again, then you get that innocent... It's the the innocent people, the hork are people, you know, that they still have to fight against because that's where they are. Right. They just don't think about it very often. Yeah. Right. Like, what would yeah. they do if they thought about yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So I have a question about Aftran's humanity. Mm-hmm. How much is Karen, again, the person who saves the day here by being like the most empathetic vessel for Aftran to be in, <laughs> mm-hmm. in this moment? Right. I wonder. The fact that she's like a little girl with big green eyes or the fact yeah, that Yeah, the she... fact that she's a little girl with okay. big green eyes, right? Like how much of her initial hesitation comes from that? Like if she was older, ugly, you know, or or a hork or a taxon. Oh, or a man. And this actually... Someone more threatening. Yeah, like how would that have changed things? And then 
Yeah. Does it make it easier for Cassie to dehumanize her? Right. Yeah. I think probably. I guess, sorry, this is a totally separate thing, but it did make, it did remind me that I had this thought, which is about Yerk gender. So oh, yeah. They oh, yeah. She misgenders the, after him at one point, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, once. I noticed yeah. that. Yeah, but, but misgenders her, like, what is, like, she's gendered as female in the story for the most part, but, like, Why? that's just because she's a female host, right? It's and, like, three, she's, if you look at Visser 3 and, and Visser 1, and, like, it's kind of interesting. And I wonder... Like, you know, the, the stereotype of women being more empathetic and, like, mm. open to, you know, not wanting to hurt people and stuff like that. I, I don't know how this would have played or if they would have been able to. I don't know. I just think that there's it's they chose a, a female coded year. Right. Like, it's a really good point. One of the things I was thinking earlier when Ted was talking about this was that this would never work with Tamrash. Right, it only works oh, yeah. because it's Aftran that she's. It's your Cassie. Yeah, it's your Cassie. Cassie. She found your Cassie. They made friends. Good job, you guys. It's not going to work with pretty much anybody else, right? That's one of the sort of you catastrophe aspects Elements, of yeah. this. But also, and this is just a sheer biology point, but if there are three Yerks that come together <laughs> to make new baby Yerks, having a binary gender system is That's what I'm saying. Nonsense. Yeah, but they never <laughs> pursue that. For some reason, like, they have this really interesting reproductive thing they introduce here, but, like, the Yerk gender binary is never even brought up. Like, right. I mean, it th- reminds me of with how, Axe with Axe, yeah. yeah, it seems like... It's a blind spot in the world building yeah. in terms of the, the possibilities of sci-fi. But um, yeah. I do wonder, calling? so there is one spot where she talks about, like, the Yurk could go to this gas station and call his superiors. And I was like, you've been referring to the Yurk as her while she's been in your head for the past chapter. I wonder if it's just that, like, they, you know, made a last minute change. and were like, let's have her be female, even when she's in Cassie's head. And they forgot to change that one pronoun or something. But it does seem like there, for some reason, she's reading her as female, even when she's in her head. Maybe it's just a carryover from Karen. Yeah, actually, that'd be a really interesting thing to ask them in an interview. Like, was Aftran originally male, yeah. and then they got like an editing note that was like, it should be, make her make her female, or like yeah. we've seen enough male. Like, I don't know. That's interesting. <laughs> we still haven't seen a female Andalite, so that's true. <laughs> Except for the wife, right? Well, we haven't seen her. We heard. We we know know they exist. We know they exist. We know at least one female exists. (laughs) Has existed. Maybe there was only one. (laughs) Another way that the world building is weak is the ableism. I'd like to address it briefly. Um, So, I think that there's this bit where she talks about. So, Aftrain is a is a particular person who gets a lot out of the experience of sight for the first time. Yes. But the way that she talks about the limits of Yurik's relative to humans, and especially to humans who can morph, really emphasizes being blind and then being able to see. And she has this bit where she's like, you want me to go back to being like this caterpillar, helpless, weak, and blind. And I feel like it would have... The reason why I feel like you could... It, it could be almost the same story without the emphasis on vision. And it, it yeah. comes back to like, oh, I'm now a bird and like I can see all these amazing things. Cassie's like, oh, I'm reminded of how great nature is and how many colors there are. Right. And like all of these different things. And even at the same time, while they're, while she's talking about, oh, well, when I turn into a wolf, I can smell these amazing things. And, and the mm. Yerks describe, right, like it's not just the the fact that they can't see. It's just that they have this 
flat existence compared to the power that comes with getting to be all these different yeah. animals and do all these different things and see all these different places. And so just the fact that the authors choose to boil it down to being a metaphor for sight is super ableist. And it's just not... I think that they want you to generalize Aftran's statements to how all Yerks feel about this. And the Animorphs have struggled with this in previous books, and the series is going to struggle with it in major ways at least twice more. So <laughs> I feel like I feel like it's a it's what a, a random prediction. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just like that that would be the one thing that I would say about the Animorphs series is like, don't read it if this is going to be a huge yeah. A huge I mean, problem I, for I you. think that like. I think it is a problem, but I also want to say that, like, in bioethics, it's actually a really complex issue, like, what you think of as illness or disability, because some people experience themselves as being, you know, having some, some, something that needs to be fixed, even if it's not something that, like, the rest of us think should be, or, like, like, just... I don't know. I just think it's, it is a little bit complex. And I agree that having her make this as a stand-in for, like, all Yerks feel exactly this way about right. sight yeah, is bad. She's basically, she's basically saying, like, being blind is so bad that enslaving an entire race is a better alternative. Like, that is kind of what this book is having Aftran say right. for at least part of it. And then she kind of comes around and, like, I guess I'm willing to do this terrible thing. I guess, yeah, I want to go further in that I think that this is another thing. Like, I didn't read this as, I didn't know the term ableist when I was reading this for the first time, right? But, like, the rhetoric of, oh, it's so nice to be able to look around and see really speaks to me as a sighted person and was something that I was, like, really, like, rallied behind when I was reading it for the first time. And so that's why I think it's it's problematic is that you don't, is, is you don't have the, you don't have that the the variety of experience in dealing with different disabilities presented in the text at all. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the way this is what reminded me of the, the ableism topic is that I feel like the Animorphs really falls down in terms of the way that there is like species essentialism about how like humans have all these different perspectives, but they're weird. All Andalites are basically the same and all Yerks are basically <laughs> the same and all Herpagia are basically the same and all Taxons are basically the same. And every other, every creature out there in the world kind of like approaches things and thinks things in the same way to the point where Axe is like, wow, species getting along and like diversity. <laughs> that's, that's such a foreign idea to me. And like, and you can sort of say, oh, well, you know, that's said something about Andalites in particular, but I really see it as a weakness of the, the world building in general, that they have this kind of like species essentialism that's like, they don't really, if, if the book is willing to go to, hey, we're all humans and there's kind of this stuff that applies to us in in all these different ways. The books mm. really fall down in terms of presenting a diverse array of perspectives. Well, in general, this book was different. better about that yeah, because this is the first she, after it really that. gets developed as an individual. And, yeah. very different and you hear about Yerks that have Right. Um. So that, that's just like why it's so disappointing to me that it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I do think I, your I general point. I actually think that's point... why it bothers me less because I didn't feel it so much as a standing in for everything. Yeah, because I think your general point about like the species essentialism, like part of it's just that we haven't had a lot of significant interactions with a lot of representatives of the species. Yeah. And now we're starting to have 
that a little more, or at least we have had a little more in this book where we've had two extremely different Yurks that we've gotten to know relatively well. Sure. And maybe I'm missing the forest for the trees. Because what I said earlier is when I first read this book, I was like, wait, Yurks aren't evil, right? So like, <laughs> if that if that's the message, like that's the more that's the more important message to get out of the book. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's not it's... unimportant to say well, and they I should think... have chosen a different metaphor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I in general agree. I guess I did interpret it more as her individual perspective and like that she felt like it was this huge individual sacrifice to give that up in particular and you said something about like oh it's bad enough that it's worth enslaving people over and that's really horrible and I guess I thought of that more like that's a failing on her part morally yeah, like, it might it's not about like, like how this bad is the thing the... she cares about yeah yeah I mean I think there's enough in the book that's about how wonderful sight is for me to be a little like <laughs> that's not a great and when she yeah, morphs not she's not like flying feels awesome right which is the thing the n-morphs say all the time right she says i can see forever right it's very specific oh, that's all true. of her experiences yeah. after she has this conversation with aftran are about vision and i think part of apple grant's point is that it is great if you if you are a sighted person like sight is great you can see colors you can see flowers it's all very cool but presenting that as a sort of raison d'etre for this invasion is, like, not great. The other thing I wanted to bring up about it was actually Cassie as a butterfly at the end. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about this, too. Yeah. yeah. So she, when she comes into herself again as a butterfly, she's the first thing that she says is, I could see. I could see again. Colors. Like some lunatic artist run nuts, spraying everything in brilliant, iridescent, glowing, insane colors. Because she has compound eyes. And then she says, I, I was seeing color the way a butterfly does, which is very different from human sight. To my fractured compound eyes, I seem to be a dazzling ultraviolet and red. But human eyes would see me quite differently. And then she describes what she looks like as a butterfly. But one thing that I thought was really interesting about that is her experience here has given her an additional edge to her sight, Mm. right? She doesn't just see the Yerks as they are. She kind of sees Uh, a little bit extra, just like as a butterfly, she can see Mm -hmm. the ultraviolet Mm -hmm. end of the spectrum, Mm -hmm. which I thought was like Mm -hmm. another very on-the-nose metaphor. Well, yeah, I mean, it's part of how, like, this is a very well-written book, and they've taken this metaphor, which if you completely forget about the ableism, they handle it well. Of course, you can't do that because people who are not sighted might be reading this and feel very excluded and, mm-hmm. you know, not great about that. But, like, clearly they are employing this metaphor with, you know, writerly skill, if not mm-hmm. the correct mm-hmm. amount of empathy. So the the other thing that jumped out to me about the butterfly at the end is that the way that she... I, I just love Cassie's chapter where she she goes through the metamorphosis because she sort of feels a little bit guilty that maybe like she cheated, maybe she cheated Aftran. And so I, to me, that implies that she kind of saw that the caterpillar was about to go through the transformation or she thought it was likely enough that she didn't think that she was going to be able to get out of it. But she was like, at least I can live as a butterfly. Mm-hmm. And isn't being a butterfly great? And she even thinks like, it's so it's such a relief to just be able to go out and pollinate the flowers and just like live with a simple purpose. Mm-hmm. And I see her struggling throughout the book. She keeps returning to like, she's when the Animorphs have her cornered, she's bandaging a goose and she's constantly tending to Karen's wounds. Mm-hmm. And she's, I feel like she by default tries to take on this like do no harm kind of approach. And then of course, 
when you're at war, that's not enough, right? But yeah. that's what that's what that's what she wants. That's what she, wants. she just really wants to be able to do no harm, right? Like yeah. that's the yeah. that's her whole motivation for quitting is like I don't want to I don't want to hurt people anymore, and I don't want to get used to hurting people. Yeah, right, right. And so so like she actually is she is happy as a butterfly. She gets what yeah. she wants. It's like she, the simpler she's life. She's been struggling with these really impossible to reconcile moral issues the whole time. And suddenly she has this simple purpose. And it's such a wonderful thing that she gets to become a human again. But also, we were saying this a little before, there's something tragic about that too, because she has to go back to this fight where she's going to have to keep compromising and she no longer gets to have this sort of simple good purpose that she wanted. One thing about the caterpillar butterfly, I thought it was interesting that, well, so Cassie speculates that Afton didn't know that the caterpillar would turn into a butterfly. I thought, Mm. I wasn't totally sure about that because, you know, she very well might. She knew, you know, Curious George, Bambi, stuff like that. Clearly her host likes animals. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that even if Afton doesn't know, it's symbolically important that she picks Caterpillar as the parallel to the Yerks, um, as opposed to a slug, because it has the capacity and even the imperative to change. Um, And so Mm -hmm. instead of being a slug, the Yerks are like the Caterpillars. They need to get to their next stage. Okay, I just want to say... I want to say something about the butterfly thing, not on a moral philosophy note. So Gray was saying how it doesn't make sense. You could certainly make that argument. But acts seem to recognize natural morphing as a thing, not just as like a, hey, this might work, but like, a, oh, yeah, I know about this. This is a thing. I bet there's an Andalite. You remember the Skritna? Oh, you yeah, yeah, the yeah, Skritna yeah, yeah, yeah. Have, like the two phases. They yeah. have like the Skrit they're, phase where they're being they're bugs that turn into little turn gray into aliens. Little gray aliens. Yeah. I bet there's an Andalite who's gotten stuck as a script nothlet and then was able to demorph after he or she turned into a na. Right. That's my theory. And that's in <laughs> book... <laughs> In book eight, when he's like, Tobias hasn't asked me whether being an author is forever. Oh. The answer is, well, if red-tailed hawks undergo natural morphing, <laughs> then you can be free again. So I don't know yeah. enough about red-tailed hawks, but, you know, like... I bet he doesn't read about red-tailed hawks just because he doesn't want to have to tell what about, Tobias. What no. about molting? Is that natural morphing? You would only be able to morph your feathers. Wait. <laughs> yeah, is this we've already talked about this. Thing? We've already talked about this, but here's the big question. Is puberty morphing? <laughs> Sure. Uh, so why not? Could Anything. Tobias become a human boy Nothlet and then wait until puberty starts to morph out? <laughs> sure, as long as puberty happens immediately. Uh, so okay. my other question related to this is if they were all, which is arguable, I mean, they were 13, but like, let's say they're all prepubescent when they get the morphing power. Then when they go through puberty, they become adult Nothlets and lose their power. <sighs> yeah, if you stay an adult for two hours. <laughs> That's why none of us can morph. <laughs> all right it's very um, um it's very speaking of morphing books. we haven't talked at all about descriptions of morphing partly because there weren't that many <laughs> in this book but i did want to call your attention to the morphing imagery or some of the imagery that's in cassie's morph into the caterpillar because i think it really like emphasizes the permanent sacrifice of it mm-hmm, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. my legs shrank so did my arms i stared down at them as they withered twisting and curling like a paper that's been thrown on the edge of a fire the fingers curled and disappeared Ooh, yeah 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 this was a real gross one <laughs> well and just so, like that, that yeah, sort really of yeah, it, uh, symbolic. right another morphing note that again is not symbolic she gets herself infested while she's partially in morph yes she does 
Yeah, and then we never actually see her demorph. It's really unclear when that happens. Oh yeah, just putting that out there since we've had oh, no. some questions. About I didn't. <laughs> I didn't realize that this book disproves my Yerk deletion theory. Oh no! She was only partially morphed, and it was an animal that seemed like maybe it could no, sustain a year. No, okay. no, all your cells get replaced. <laughs> no, Yurks just travel through the barrier into the ether where consciousness lives. That's they're, just how they work. Oh, I was gonna say they're they're like hork bajir flesh stuck in your teeth. <laughs> oh god, can we talk about that? Okay, so that was so oh, evocative. Oh my god, we don't god. have to go. So this is the other. It's very memorable. Okay, so this book we didn't even. There's so much that we haven't gotten into, and we're not going to get into, but. Cassie is struggling. She's depressed and dealing with anxiety throughout the entire book. Constantly, she's like, I can't breathe. I am having trouble breathing. My heart almost stopped. Yeah. And she's talking about how the things that she likes to do, like hang out with her animals, don't bring her joy anymore. Yeah. And she's having nightmares. She has this amazing moment where she goes home and her parents, we haven't even talked about this subplot. Her parents have to break the news to her that the clinic is shutting down because they mm-hmm. ran out of funding. The Dudette Cat Food Corporation presumably yeah, on, has pulled out has pulled out of the uh funding the clinic and there's this horrible moment where cassie's dad has to say to her like oh cassie like i'm sorry and he can't meet her eyes i think we're gonna have to shut the clinic down which is like as soft as he can make it because obviously he knows that they have to yeah. shut it down and he's just breaking it to her gently and cassie does not care right her entire she's just quit being an animorph she's now losing all the animals she wants to take care of she doesn't care at all. She's completely checked out. And then I just imagine her sitting there and she's not reacting at all. Her parents are like, what's wrong with our daughter? And her mother, mm-hmm. maybe she's like grimacing or something. And her mother sees that she's got something stuck in her teeth. And it's like the she's demorphed with a piece of hork stuck in her teeth. And then she has this awful Lady Macbeth moment where she starts to brush her teeth to get oh, the yeah. the piece out and she keeps doing it until she's bleeding from the mouth and like they describe like the pink foam as she's trying to like purge this memory from existence and it's so bleak like that's like it's the horrible. lowest that we've seen anyone dealing with the toll of being an animorph it's so bad it was like every part of my life that mattered was being taken away in a single night and then the next day she says to her friend she's like i didn't care i didn't feel anything yeah and she even says like i think this was new she talks about how all of the different Animorphs react after a battle, and like Marco tries to make a joke, but it's drained. Rachel's mm-hmm. high. Tobias is silent. Jake is depressed because he's always depressed after a battle. And like, yeah. I don't think anyone's put it so succinctly before, but like, boy, yeah. they're they're not doing well. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is very much a culmination of like the mid-teens. I actually, we talked a really long time ago in this recording session about the the stick that's used for mm. um. A healing tool instead of a weapon. And I know that you all have talked in the past sometimes about morphing, which is considered a weapon to be Mm -hmm. used as a healing. Mm -hmm. I mean, how people use it to escape or or heal potentially. And I feel like maybe their focus on using it so much for missions and war could use a little give and they might be able to think about ways to use it more therapeutically. Um, Which we've seen them do right. a little bit like right, more but sometimes they get scolded more for it. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Rachel goes flying after she has this, like so much trouble with the bear morph in seven and and they're like you were flying all afternoon and it's yeah it, it's maybe it's something they should embrace. There's another moment where the Animorphs besides Cassie show that they're struggling with this and like we were saying um, Cassie's kind of like I think I said this before. It's like premise rejection. It's like we can't go on like this anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, it's when she was taught. It's like following up on what you were saying, Gray. Like I felt bad because I felt nothing. 
I felt nothing, Rachel. At that moment, I felt like I was just doing my job, you know. And then it's been going on for a long time. Each day, each battle, each mission, I just feel less and less. And then we get their reactions. Rachel looks away, so she doesn't, she, she can't meet Cassie's eyes. And then I turn to Jake. He made the ghost of a smile, and he nodded his head. He understood. He knew. It was happening to him, too. But then he looked away as well, right? Yeah. And so it's like, she's just calling out, like, it's eating us. It's eating us away on the inside. And, like, obviously, they can't just, like, you know, they can't, they can't deal with it. They just have to keep going. Yeah. And she says that later, too, about Marco. When he's, he's come and he has a chance to kill Karen, he says, okay. He said it casually like it was no big deal oh, yeah. to him. But I knew better. I knew he was feeling the awful violence sickness yeah. inside of him. It's but, like so well put. Yeah. But like, oh, God. Incredibly evocative. It's interesting. So I feel like 9 and 19 are really, really go together for Cassie. Like 14 okay. was totally different. But 9 and 19. Like in 9, she has the thing with the skunks where we talked about it's giving them sort of a feel-good win. Like they get to win at something. Like it's really low stakes, but it's still, you know, they make it important to them and they win at it. And this is such higher stakes. Uh-huh. She sort of gives them a win again, but it's so much more fraught. It's yeah. like like the skunk thing, like squared or cubed. Like that's how far they've come in this this war. And it's really like Cassie kind of comes full circle, right? She has the duty to the skunk, and here she has the duty to Karen and Aftran, right? Yeah. And like, and we saw her back in sixteen. She's like, I don't even know anymore. And Rachel being like, oh, wait, yeah. Cassie's like really struggling, right? In 17, so like, yeah. in 17, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do actually want to, just speaking of bringing things full circle, I want to go back to the first passage that Claire read about the fox. Mm-hmm. The description of the fox is its tail had been hacked off probably by some troubled kids. So the uh, yeah. first time I read that through, I was like, or some hork like going through <laughs> the forest, chopping things down. But a couple things about that really struck me when Claire was reading it. One is that the Animorphs are pretty troubled kids right now. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, that yeah. If you're ascribing this, like, there are all kinds of messed up things that these troubled kids can do. I think that's a very clear parallel to what they're going through. And also that the tail being hacked off is irreversible, right? That's not going to get fixed. So even if the fox oh, is, yeah. like, healed enough to be released again... It will never have a tail. And she says, it's okay. It's okay. And she's really struggling here, I think, to, as we said, you know, to tell herself that. But also, I think she's accepting that there are some things that are just never going to be okay. And you have to kind of take those and make it okay anyway. Yeah. Something else that really jumped out to me about this book, reading it this time, is that uh, we talked a lot about how instinctual Cassie is and how, like, she makes a lot of risky bets that pay off in like such yeah. an amazing way. And I I don't know I don't know that I got this out of it at the time, but I feel like this is one of the most compelling portraits of faith that I have read from what I'm pretty sure are a pair of atheists. Um, <laughs> I just it's like the way that Cassie thinks about needing to trust in Aftran, even though she knows that it's she sort of has nothing to go on but her own faith is yeah. so powerful and the, the it's like the miracle at the end of the book is yeah. is really something right it's like something that you want to believe in and, and like it's telling that we compared it to tolkien where i feel like the ethics are very similar to this book in particular and tolkien is so religious i mean yeah. theology inspires everything in his books but like usually when i read something that's like 
oh, you know, it, uh, this just doesn't read to me at all like a, a Christian metaphor, right? So like, it's like, it's, but it's Although such a powerful she... portrayal. No, I know, I know. I but... did notice it was three days. Even though it was supposed to be two <laughs> I was like, wow. And the butterfly is like a very... Yeah, but like, I'm I, I just saying it's such a, it's, it really jumped out to me this time that that's what this is. And yeah. it's normally I'm a little skittish about that kind of stuff. And this one, this one really got through to me. It's a very yeah. specific kind of faith. I think in a lot of ways, it struck me as incredibly humanist. Yeah. yeah, yeah the yeah. idea uh-huh. isn't a faith in a sort of higher power or even faith that natural morphing will like magically reset your morphing clock. Yeah. It's faith that when you have trust in someone else, that they can and will repay that trust. And I think a lot of that is, you know, sort of flat out said in a lot of the conversations that they have, but also it's Cassie's implicit trust in in Aftran that she will uphold her end of the bargain. And that's such a humanist perspective that like humans have humans, even if that human is a yerk, like has that um, sense of what we owe each other. I really like that. I Yeah, I gotta say like... (laughs) All of my, like, little notes about things that characters do, just skipping right over it. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't even take any of those this time. Read this book yourselves. It's got all this and more. (laughs) It's rubbing. (laughs) So this time, you can also look at the physical copy, although it's, I mean, you shouldn't look at too much, obviously. Yeah, I'm not going to because I'm worried that the inside text has the, the inside cover has the text I'm not supposed to read. Yeah. Is that true? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, uh, here, no. I can cover Major- it for you. No, 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 Claire, can you pull up the cover for? I am doing that right now. Yeah, it's called the Discovery. It is a really bad cover. No, I just wanted to see the image. Don't tell me anything. I didn't look at any words. Marco on this cover is wearing Wait. the same shade of lipstick that I was wearing today. Did we explain? I think we always forget to actually just describe the color, cover oh, for yes. our listeners. Good point. Okay, so this describe is... the lipstick, the most important part. Uh, Marco's so... lips morph into the lips of uh, Cobra. Oh, they don't have lips. <laughs> no, it's true. They disappear. They Marco's disappear. beautiful lipstick disappears. So it's Marco. He's morphing into a cobra. It's real gross. The end. I don't know. The second picture in this one and the third one are both very bad, and I hate them. He's also dressed incredibly 90s, like slightly (laughs) high-waisted jeans with the black belt and, like, a kind of high-necked oversized t-shirt i definitely tucked in tucked in to the pants <laughs> with the belt i definitely had this outfit and wore it and it was bad on me too so. did you wear it with your bowl cut probably amazing uh okay um oh no uh the cut text might actually be helpful this time it says what? get ready there's a brand new animorph <gasps> oh come but, on how could that no. even happen what oh my gosh, I read that as get ready. There's a brand. And then I like didn't read the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's I sweeties. It was a sponsor now. Argo and like, I don't know. No, don't look at the picture. Okay. Don't okay. look at the picture. <laughs> I won't look at the picture. Um, okay. Well, usually that doesn't tell me anything. This no, time I even did. Okay. Um, Claire, do you have any uh, suspicions about this one? It's going to be the first sponsored Animorphs book. <laughs> I'm, I'm still trying to get over my initial misconception about the brand. Um, <laughs> like, where would they find a new Animorph? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Um, and where would they find a Cobra? Yeah, also a good point. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so the why would they need a Cobra? Animorph now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they might need a Cobra. So I want to know who, why, and how. Okay, for the new Animorph. Or you can reject. You you can say it's misleading you. That's fine too. I'm it not going to say. Is. I'm not going to say there is a new animorph or not. 
Okay, so they are going to need the Cobra. Wait, I will say one thing. <laughs> I said before in 13, when Tobias gets his morphing power back, that that was the last spoiler that existed in the series for you. I was lying. This book introduces <laughs> the last thing that you could plausibly be spoiled about before See, like, the very end of the I series. you're lying again to no, me. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm Never not. trust This us. is a big one. This is a huge one, Gray. So I think... Oh, can I? I just, I just now, We're just to, just to really get in your that. head before you make the prediction, and now you and Claire can collaborate. Oh yeah, Claire. Okay, well, I think if there's a spoiler and there's a brand new animorph, there's like some other way that they can pass along morphing technology beyond just the Elemis, like giving it back to Tobias, right? Yeah. Well, they've got to get the cube again somehow. Is oh, my yeah. suspicion. So that's, like, that's okay. A good so that's call. a how. That's, so who and why? Yeah, shoot, I really want it to be Eric the Chi, but I don't, I don't think an, um, androids can become Animorphs, which is too bad, because I love him. Andromorph? Andromorph. Um, okay, so maybe it's going to be, I don't know that it's going to be somebody that they know. I bet it's going to be, like, they find a new person, like they found oh. Axe. What about somebody who's, like, potentially being recruited by the sharing, but they, like, know they're not a controller, and they figure, like, this person can infiltrate? Ooh. Interesting. Okay. What What do you think about Why that? Why do they need snakes? Now I'm snakes. Because <laughs> um, uh, usually, like, they want to go into the reptile house. Oh well. So, hmm. yeah, I don't know about the snake. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, okay, I'm gonna just say they need to get into the reptile house at the zoo. So that's how they get the cobra, and also why they get the cobra. Same reason, reptile house at the zoo. And uh, uh, maybe they finally find that cube that, like, they lost in the first <laughs> book, and it turns up again. Sounds great. Okay. Anything okay. to add, Claire? No. Oh, one one other thing we didn't talk about was the departure as a name. Oh, oh yeah. Give us your take. I've, you know. I mean, like, a bunch of things, right? So, like, the exit sign, Cassie leaving the group, deciding to leave the group. Karen, I mean... Aftran departing from the the norms of your culture and turning away from from that literally the butterfly exiting the <laughs> um, I'm also, really proud of them for not saying I departed from my cocoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um also isn't the first one called The Arrival? Invasion. No. Oh, sorry. There is an arrival. When's The Arrival? Yeah. It's when's like 20 that? books from now. Oh. That happens later. Okay. The last book's called yeah, The Beginning, so they like to mess with it in that way. <laughs> huh. Okay. Never mind then. But it is a departure from how these books have normally been going. That's true. We've got it. <laughs> All right. Good night, everyone. <laughs> good night. Thanks, guys. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. So, the departure. And I'm Claire. Nope. No.